Slack is a real-time messaging system for work communication. On Slack, chat rooms as big as 100,000 people have productive conversations. This might sound like the same problem solved by social networks like Facebook, where billions of users communicate over a news feed. But the engineering constraints of a messaging system are different than that of a social network. On a news feed, the order in which events appear is not necessarily chronological. Events can be out of order. You can miss events. When a user posts a message to a social network, there are not strict guarantees around when other people will see that message. On Slack, messages have strong guarantees around arrival. When I send a message, everyone else who is in the room and connected should quickly receive that message as well. The messages need to be ordered and delivered exactly once. All messages on Slack are persisted. In the past, we've covered architecture and security at Slack. In today's show, Keith Adams returns to discuss how messages are processed and broadcast in Slack. The problem of Slack's messaging system is similar to the distributed systems problem of atomic broadcast in which a single process broadcasts a message which needs to be received by all the other processes correctly, or else received by none of the other processes. In Keith's last show, he talked through the benefits of building a large system on PHP. Keith previously worked on infrastructure at Facebook, which was also a PHP application. It's worth noting that both Slack and Facebook have scaled a monolithic architecture, which runs in slight contrast to the fever around microservices architecture. Keith Adams, you are the chief architect at Slack. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much, Jeff. Great to be back. Yes, the last time we talked, we spoke mostly about the overall architecture. We talked about PHP. We talked about your time at Facebook. It was a, a great overview. Today, I'd like to go deeper into the concept of messaging and particularly how to scale a messaging system and how you've done this at, at Slack. If we start at a high level and we're looking at your time in the past couple of years, what has stood out as the biggest challenge in adapting the architecture to the scale that you have reached at Slack? That's a, a great question, and I know I'm going to weasel out of it initially and sort of say it's been a million little things, but I think I have an insight into the shape of the million little things and what thread unites them that took me a while to form. But it's going to take a little bit of background to kind of zoom in. So starting way out in sort of classical academic distributed systems, one of the first things that you want to do when you string two computers together is build a reliable messaging service between them, right? As soon as you've got a computer talking to some other computer with a wire between them, you want them to share a log, right? You realize right away that if I could just have a persistent log that they both could share and, and agree on the contents of, I could do all kinds of neat things, right? I could build a, a fault-tolerant database out of that. I could build a product like Slack out of that. I could build a product like Bitcoin out of that. And it occurs to you when you sit down and start coding and trying to make this happen, you find out pretty soon that the fact that these are physical objects in the physical world with uh, failures and delays and possibly even mangled messages makes this really difficult. And so you, you kind of bang your head against the wall for a while and maybe move on to something else. But early distributed systems academics realized pretty quickly that there was actually an impossibility result hiding out in here. So around the same time as consensus was sort of shown to be impossible, they also proved that the problem that Slack is sort of approximating a solution to, which is called atomic broadcast, is also impossible. So 
Let me try and describe sort of a, in terms of that a Slack user would find familiar the requirements of a channel, right? What's a channel supposed to do? Well, we have this understanding that when I send a message in a channel, everybody's going to eventually see that message who's subscribed to the channel, right? And we have this understanding too that they're on mobile devices, they're on laptops, they're online, they're offline. But we have a sense that eventually they'll get back online and then they'll see all the messages that have been sent and they'll see them in the same order. We also have an intuition that if I receive a message, everybody else will eventually receive it as well. Right? So the channel sort of keeps the channel abstraction, the basic product channel abstraction guarantees. The channel doesn't hallucinate messages, right? The only place that messages come from are the fact that people send them. And finally, we got a total order. Everybody agrees on the order that the messages arrived in. And it turns out those four things are actually the definition of atomic broadcast. So there's a very strong kind of impossibility result at the core of the kind of product that Slack is trying to be. That doesn't mean we lay down and die, of course, right? Slack exists, it's useful. We strive to make it more useful. But it does mean that there are going to be some corner cases and some failure cases and some contingencies where you'll have some hard decisions to make. And those decisions are going to be informed partly by product choices, right? So the way that you want to handle the fact that messages can get lost or reordered is going to be different when you're dealing with something like user presence, right? The little green dot next to names when people are, are online. Then you're going to do for for text messages, then you're going to do for files, then you're going to do for uh, reactions to files and so on. So that combination of there's no one right way to do it, right? There's a strong negative result that says you can't have everything you'd want from a system like this is going to mean that we keep having interesting challenges, scaling, performance, correctness, and making the right trade-offs when something has to give. What you're describing there is I took a, a distributed systems class in college and it was really hard. And we implemented some of these algorithms like Atomic Broadcast or Paxos in a toy environment where we pretty much understood the failure domains that our application was going to have to satisfy. We didn't have to serve real-world traffic. We were just, you know, controlling all of the software. And even then, it was quite hard to understand what was going on. It was quite hard to understand the basics of the algorithms and what was impossible. And what you're saying here is that when you grow up and step out into the real world and you're no longer in the realm of academic computer science, this stuff still exists. Uh, yeah, that's right. And actually, in some ways, those are you know some of the more interesting places to be. I think that a lot of great technology companies have at their core some sort of apparent impossibility result that they're running up against and, and that they insist on making a good run at anyway. So down at the computer science level, Slack's challenge is uh, the fact that it's atomic broadcast and the fact that you're going to have to make choices about, about exactly what you're going to do about the fact that clients come and go and the fact that servers fail and the fact that you know storage environments are have all the messy characteristics that storage environments do. And you have to do it in a world where of 2018 where people's expectations around how well all this stuff is going to, be, going to work are set very, very high. Nobody's interested in hearing Keith explain to them you know, why Slack was slow today in, in distributed systems terms. They're just annoyed that it's slow. Well, it's, hearkening back to our last conversation, this is an interesting contrast with Facebook where obviously Facebook has a messaging product too, but the core product is the newsfeed, I, I mean, I would argue. And, and the newsfeed is more of a not even eventually consistent. Like you don't even have to time order. It. It's like throw some stuff in a list and then serve it up to people. So atomic ordered messages is not at the core of Facebook's problem. So it, that may have been a contrast in the core problem set Facebook to what you're experiencing at Slack. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair to say that sort of the 
these set of gigantic scaling consumer facing uh, solutions that got kind of mastered in the in the late aughts, early teens by by Google and Facebook and Twitter and, and lots of other companies. That playbook is very focused on a world of sort of information retrieval, right, where there's some ranking function that does better than chance that tells us what we want to see. And the idea that there is a, a ranking function that's deterministic, right, that's forced on us by the product choices, and that missing anything is, is still a wrong answer. And we want to have tight latency tolerances and have things feel fast and slick and, and highly available actually makes Slack a, a really challenging environment from a distributed systems point of view. And since you mentioned some of the consumer-focused messengers, right? So, you know, Facebook has a messaging product, you know, as is Google, as is everybody these days. It's one of the things that uh, tends to get tacked onto the side of consumer-oriented uh, logins these days. There's a difference in practice between supporting conversations among a handful of users, which is really what those consumer-oriented ones let you support, because they make you compose the two-line, right? You decide who this conversation's about, and maybe if you're having the hairiest conversation you'll ever attempt in Facebook Messenger, you'll try to get 12 people into it or something, and then you realize you've got a 13th person. But you're never going to get to 100,000 people that way, right? You're never going to get to, you know, a huge enterprise where literally everybody's going to open their laptop at 9 a.m. and expect to read what the CEO wrote in the announcement channel. And that's more the kind of challenge that Slack has to get to. And you might say that, well, you know, is do we want atomic broadcast for something with an audience of 100,000? You know, what you're describing in some way sounds sort of like a WordPress blog. And that's, that's actually a fair observation. I mean, part of what makes Slack interesting is that while we've got one product abstraction in the channel, the constant factors between, you know, you and I having a DM thread where it's just the two of us on our mobile phones and an entire enterprise looking on their laptops, you know, something that 100,000 other people are going to try to read at the same time means that we probably do need to have more than one trick in the toolbox for, for how we handle this stuff. Could you give a few examples of what kinds of patterns work when you have 100 people in a channel versus when you have 100,000 people in a channel? Yeah. So with small numbers of people, the trade-off between sort of pull and push becomes a lot less critical. So uh, imagine in the limit that it's just you and me. The differences between, and let's say that we can tolerate a couple seconds of staleness, right? The differences between you and me just pulling some backend and asking, hey, are there any messages that I need to get every couple seconds? That's a pretty acceptable chunk of server load. But if you have gazillions of people trying to do that to the same conversation, First of all, whatever server-side object actually backs the, the unread state of that is going to be pretty heavily loaded. But secondly, you'll obviously have you know, that larger factor of people fanning in to do it. So it becomes more critical to actually either have some sort of push story. In our case, we use WebSockets as the technology where we use push to get into clients quickly. Or to have a, a carefully considered polling story. And that carefully considered part is, is gets complex quickly. If you... So let's say that you take that insight and you run with it, right? And you say, okay, uh, we're going to do uh, WebSockets now. So Slack is going to behave as in a strictly sort of server push way. There's all kinds of information that is in that a Slack client needs to keep up to date with that isn't necessarily well served by a, a server push model. A good example of this is imagine user profiles, right? So Slack users have usernames, they have a status, they have a profile picture. Those things change, and they change at sort of a, for most users, a pretty slow pace. Uh, it'd be unusual to change your profile picture more than once a day, for instance, in a work product like Slack. So if you have this WebSocket as the only possible way to get updates into a client, 
you have this temptation, and, and this was a performance problem we had early on at Slack with large teams, you have this temptation to broadcast every possible change out over it. So for instance, let's say that you and I work at a 100,000 person company, and we're both Slack users at this company. If we simply broadcast every user profile change over the WebSocket, pretty quickly all the traffic is gonna be nothing but user profile changes, even though people don't change their profile more often than once a month. And this led to a bunch of kind of nasty networking problems in our, in our right amplifier that gets messages out to, out to clients. And so, you know, in that particular case, the right answer is probably something more like some kind of pub-sub architecture, right? Where a client would know what information it has cached or what information it has in view and would only subscribe to real-time updates to the, for the set of things that uh, it actually cares about. But then that means that there is more state associated with your connection, right? Now the, the server side of your connection needs to have some sense of what you're interested in, what it can censor upstream. And this ends up kind of rippling pretty far back into the infrastructure. So we keep finding, you know, little ways to, to improve these things. A, b- a big example recently for us was a, a project that we called Lazy Channels. And this gets to sort of some of the graph structure that's inherent in, in a Slack client. So it's very hard, and I, this happens to me too, by the way, even though I do this all the time from the engineering side of the companies I've worked at, it's very hard as a user of one of these pieces of software to not think about it in a single player way, right? Your experience of it is whatever you see. And so you tend to think of it as, gosh, you know, Slack just has some icons and a few messages that it needs to get to me. Why is this so hard? In a large company, channel creation tends to more or less linearly follow user addition. The number of, of active channels in a company tends to be about linear with the company's size. No, and that's like a sociological claim. That turns out to be true. You have to actually build Slack and deploy it and let people use it before you know it. I know of no first principles reason that that should be true. It just turns out to be true. And you might imagine, you can make up a story why that shouldn't be true, right? You could imagine that that's what, uh, that if the channel structure follows the org structure, it should be like log and the number of users or something. But that's not what happens. So that turns out, that means that the graph that connects users to their subscription of channels, right? So which users are in which channel? That means that that graph grows quadratically, right? Because every user comes along, they create some fraction of a channel. Now the, the binary matrix that says, is this user in this channel is num users by num users. And if, as we did when Slack was, was young, we tried to synchronously pump that matrix down into every client as soon as you connect, you're only going to be able to support certain sizes of teams. So we, we have this system that we call lazy channels now that basically applies this sort of pub-sub architecture that's a lot easier to think about in terms of user profiles, but applies that pub-sub architecture to channel membership. And so each client's only getting information about the channels it cares about at a, any given point in time. And that's been a big win for us in terms of uh, reliability and startup time on large teams recently. But stuff like this is going to keep coming. Lazy referring to lazy loading. So meaning when I connect to Slack for the first time or on, let's say I get a new phone and I connect to, to Slack and, and my team is already there with with its tens of thousands of messages and thousands of users. And if I hit Slack and I, you know, my, my phone says to Slack, hey, give me all of the messages that are relevant to me uh, so that I have a backlog that I can look through and then I can scroll through and they can understand the relationships of everybody. It's a lot of data. You like you, you're not going to be able to just download all of that on the fly if you've ha- had a team with all of this backlog of stuff. And so you got you you've implemented this lazy loading system so that your channel information kind of comes in at a pace that's reasonable. Yeah, precisely. That's the, you know, I'm using lazy and eager in sort of the classic big system design sense where 
The nice thing about doing work eagerly is if you know you need to do it, you get started as soon as you can. But the nice thing about doing work lazily is it turns out you don't need to do it all all the time. And so that's exactly kind of one of the, the dichotomies that keeps sliding around for different parts of the product. And I think that's it's a function of how people are using the product in certain ways, right? There's no kind of right way to design it. When you hear me give this talk, you're like, well, yeah, of course you'd want to do channels lazily, but you kind of need uh, to see how people turn out to use Slack before you know for sure that, that lazy is the way to go with it. And this, you know, we kind of went deep into this example of channel membership, but there's a million little objects in, inside of Slack that are kind of like this, you know, files are like this, you know, custom emoji are like this. You know, we've talked about users, uh, the sort of existence of channels, right? Whether they've been archived, things like that. It kind of, it radiates outwards in lots of different ways. And it's a little bit, this sort of eager versus lazy dichotomy, I think it helps to kind of know a little bit about the shaggy dog story of where Slack came from for why it started out so eager. There is real technical DNA for Slack's broadcast message bus that dates all the way back to it being a game server for the massively online game Glitch, which is what the company TinySpec was originally formed to produce. So Slack, the messaging product, is partly a piece dividend of, of that failed massively multiplayer online game that they came together to build. And in the game world, you know what's going on when you're looking at that splash screen with all the ogres on it and so on, is that you're getting a somewhat consistent view of the whole game state on the server so that every time you turn around a corner, there's not some you know, glitch where, you, where something pops into view while you go fetch it over the network. You want a pretty coherent view of the game world so that you have a sense of presence, right? So that it feels like a virtual place. And to the extent that this is knowable, I think that sense of presence and virtual place is one of Slack's intangible advantages in this space. I think that is one of the reasons that, uh, that Slack tends to feel more like an office than like a uh, program that you type text into and that spits text back at you. And I can't prove that. And there's no, I don't know of any easy way to run the experiment, but that's one of the reasons we're not totally reckless about just saying lazy everything all the time. It's such a useful analogy because you mentioned this term graph, uh, like the, the Slack's idea of, uh, or I think you said on, on in terms of the client that you can think of the the client's data in terms of a graph and when i think about a game like if i'm playing an online game like like world of warcraft and there's all this data that's going on in the world i'm not downloading all of the data i'm incrementally getting kind of the data that's local to me that's around me in my virtual environment and then some horizon around which i might explore so that i'm not going to hit you know the edge of the world that's sitting on my machine anytime soon i'm always getting the edges of the world buffered to me. And it seems like Slack, you kind of got the same thing. I mean, you want to be able to click into any channel and have some context for what's going on in the channel, but you don't need to have the entire state of the world eagerly buffered to your client. Precisely. And I think there's an interesting... And games are fascinating technical artifacts, by the way. I mean, I think we should... Those of us who don't make games, it's wonderful to learn a little bit about how games work on the internal side of things. I think the the interesting difference between sort of Slack and a, something like a virtual game world is that there's no spatial analogy with Slack, right? In the interest in the the game world, there's a clear notion of spatial locality, right? There's they've tiled the universe in some spatial way. Even if I'm running around it very quickly, there's some direction that I'm running it in, and there's only a, a set of neighbors that I could possibly go to next. Whereas somebody consuming their channels, like maybe you could machine learn something predictive, but all by itself, there's a chance that they'll kind of randomly access their channels. So it's hard to kind of get ahead of it in the same way that you can in game world. 
since we're on the subject of games, there was a show that we did fairly recently about network connections in gaming. So as an example, let's say you're playing a, a two-person fighting game, even just a two-person game. And, you know, we're playing over a, a cellular network, so it's kind of flaky. And, you know, let's say I, I throw a punch at you in the virtual game, you know, and then there's like a network partition but in your view of the world, there's, you know, like maybe you're on a better network than I am. And your view of the world is that I have not thrown a punch at you yet. And so you're going to throw a kick. And then there's kind of a, a conflict or resolution that has to happen because we're not punching and kicking each other at the same time. And so on the server, when the server reconciles that, the server is going to have to make almost a subjective decision around what came first, the punch or the kick. And from the talks I've seen you give about Slack, there is some subjectivity here on the messaging side of things too because you have to do the ordering of messages and the ordering of messages can be analogous to who punched first or who kicked first. Yeah, it's exactly true. There are a few interesting cases around typing in the in, in the tail of a, of a channel, right? Typing the last message in a channel where one of the things that we've chosen to get, you know, quote unquote wrong from the point of view of, of trying to solve atomic broadcast is it is possible in some circumstances for it to, you know, for me to see my message sent first and then you, then you spoke and you to see the opposite order. And it turns out that's only for a short period of time and only for the last few uh, messages in channel. But that's something where, you know, the other things that we'd have to make, the other things we'd have to give up on to make that impossible weren't worth it, right? It would have involved things like doing more round trips back and forth to a server before we could give you the feedback that says your message is sent, which you know is one of the things that, that makes Slack feel subjectively sort of correct. There was also, uh, with a particular example of message sending, there was, uh, we've kind of gone through a revolution of that over the last couple months in a, in a major way. So we have one of our founders, Sergey Morichev. He's the tech lead still of our message bus team and great programmer, fun guy to work with. And one of the things that has historically been, been unusual about Slack as sort of a, a WebSocket client has been that you can actually mutate the state of the application by writing up the WebSocket, right? So for those of you that haven't used them before, uh, WebSockets are connection-oriented and they're full duplex, right? So it's not quite the same thing as an HTTP long pole. You're free to write framed messages up to the server and the server is free to send framed messages down to you. And for a long time, we actually uh, would do message send by transmitting a message up to this uh, real-time message bus, which then on the back end was responsible for persisting it. And the story around uh, how it actually got to be persisted in stable storage in the system that the system of record for us, which is MySQL, was slightly convoluted. That Java program that, that you're writing to doesn't synchronously contact MySQL or even a web app that contacts MySQL while you're waiting for feedback. And it could actually lead to some unusual and, and, and kind of strange cases. So for instance, if the storage system or, or web app in front of the storage system was backed up, there was actually provision in that Java program to queue some messages on disk and retry transmitting them back into storage. And these are all sort of messages that we've act to users as being fully sent, as being you know fully backed up and part of the stream of record. So slightly convoluted case here, but long story short, we now post to a REST endpoint, um, the same API endpoint we advocate uh, third parties used to send messages from our first party clients because that was easier to reason about. But one of the things that we had to give up on uh, is this guarantee of ordering. That used to be that that Java server on the opposite side of your channel connection was the authoritative witness of the order of messages and could never reorder anything. 
And now it's possible for clients to have sent something at essentially the same time from their perspective. And so the way that it might appear in your client view might be different than the way that it appears in the store of record. And you go back tomorrow and see it in the right order. Luckily, Slack is for human beings and human beings are able to make sense of these distinctions. It's one of the areas where you kind of get to relax Atomic Broadcast a little bit as you sort of say, what uses are people actually putting this software to, right? Are they trying to build a distributed database out of this? Are they trying to build a distributed ledger out of this? No, or they shouldn't be anyway. Uh, It's not a good technology for it. (laughs) Not yet. Uh, Well, yeah, (laughs) I think it's probably out of scope for us. I think we want to keep this, you know, humans are in the loop in channels capacity of Slack as a way of, of settling bets on the technical architecture for a long time if we can. I wonder if the Slack chain ICO has, has, <laughs> would uh, would get some buyers. You, uh... Oh my goodness. Yeah, I think some sort of bingo card just got full as soon as you said <laughs> exactly, that there. Right. Um, uh, yeah. I suppose I technically shouldn't comment, but yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> okay. be holding my breath Fair for enough. that anytime soon. I, you know, I, I actually, I want you started touching on the architecture of the chat system, and I, I wanted to review the architecture because I was looking into it yesterday, and it's kind of complicated, you know, but I think we can approach it in a way that will be useful enough to the listeners. So, if I send a message from my phone and I'm hitting Slack. It's going to that message is going to go through some layers of routing and load balancing, but eventually it's going to hit something called a chat server and then you have a, a web app. So the chat server is kind of this dedicated thing on Slack side of things that uh, manages some of the the chat message ordering and some other aspects of the of the chat world. And then the web app is sort of like the back-endy back-end. Can you give a brief overview of these two pieces of infrastructure, then we can talk about them in more detail? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at the risk of seeming like I'm picking a nit with, you know, of, of course, we're not going to be able to go into all the detail in the world here. But for what it's worth, sending a message these days does actually go through the web app that I'm about to describe. So when you go to slack.com, right, there's a web application on the other side of that. And it goes through, as you're saying, a, a fairly typical for a, a global scale service layer of you know, DNS and routing and everything else until it makes its way into our application tier. And one of our application servers is a descendant of a LAMP stack app. Right? There's a bunch of sidecars running. There's a bunch of other stuff running. But if you, from 100,000 feet, you can tell that this used to be a PHP monolith talking to MySQL. MySQL is still in the room. The PHP monolith, we've migrated to uh, Facebook's eventual typing system or gradual typing system for PHP called Hacklang. And so we're using uh, HHVM, which is the, the Hacklang virtual machine instead of PHP on these servers. But the thing that's actually terminating HTTPS for you is Apache. And Apache's talking over fast CGI to you know about a million lines of PHP code that we've written. And that monolith is sort of the the authority about application logic in Slack. It's it what knows what a channel is. It's what knows what a user is. It knows the rules about what kinds of users can create what kinds of channels and who can invite whom and who can see what objects. So there's a lot of sort of security reasoning that goes into this. It does authentication. And it is also the sole contact integration point for storage uh, for our database. So we are partway through a migration from Vanilla MySQL sort of sharded by the client, where the PHP actually uses application logic to figure out which MySQL server to contact for a given datum, to a system called Vitesse that was originally developed at YouTube. And and Vitesse is a a layer of scale out on top of MySQL. So instead of sharding MySQL in client-side code, 
we have a sort of meta schema for how we want Vitesse to shard our data. And Vitesse then talks to a bunch of leaves that are running MySQL as well. So still physically MySQL. MySQL still actually got the bits on disk and still the thing that we that we back up. We also have a bunch of caching. So we're using memcache as a look-aside cache. We use Redis as a buffer for our job queue deferral system. We have a system for deferring work to, to later in time in case a web request is running too long. We call that the job queue. It's not very creative. Lots of places have fancier code names for their setup. But basically, we have you know a big set of Kafka topics that we pump deferred work into. We have a little Go service that pulls those Kafka topics and buffers them into Redis. And then we've got a fleet of, of workers also running our PHP monolith, consuming out of the buffered jobs in Redis. And this is how things like unfurls, right? When you type a URL into Slack and we make a little box around a summary of it, we might need to retry it a few times because that website might be down when you typed it the first time. And it might be long running, right? That website might just be slow. It might just take us 30 seconds to unfurl it. So we want to take that out of the context of the web request that you did the initial send in. And we do similar things for search indexing, for lots of other kinds of value addition to minor uh, application actions. But this part of things really is, you know, your father's web app, right? This, this sort of thing is, is understandable in terms of, you know, our CTO, Cal Henderson, is, was well known for scaling Flickr before he got started in what would become Slack. And uh, he wrote an O'Reilly book that's titled Building Scalable Websites. If you go read that O'Reilly book, like there'll be a bunch of stuff that sort of is, is obviously in the DNA of the application still. So the channel server, though, when I am like sending a message from my phone, if after I've established and I've initialized my connection with Slack, uh, I've logged in, I'm, I'm already sending messages, I'm connected. If I send a message, is that message being hit immediately by a channel server after it goes through the layers of load balancing, or is any individual message like hitting the web app as the first tier? Nowadays, it is the latter. Uh, but as recently as you know, a couple weeks ago, I think it, there probably still were some people in a holdout group where uh, you'd have written to a channel server to send the message. So let's switch over to the channel server here for a second. Let's say that, that this was all the, that the technology I've described so far, which is basically just a big website. Let's say that you want to build Slack and you're only allowed to use those kinds of technologies. Without the element of server push, you're going to be forced to use the kind of polling methodologies that I referred to early on in, the, in our conversation here, right? Where if I'm a client of this Slack service and I have no way of being uh, notified asynchronously when something's changed server side, I'm just going to have to poll. Right, I'll have no choice but to say, any new messages, any new messages, any new messages on some cadence, right? And that turns out not to be a very efficient use of, of client or server resources, and you don't get very good uh, latency for the effort. And plus, it's hard to furnish all kinds of nice little features that make it feel more like a virtual place, right? It's really hard to do typing indicators that way, and typing indicators really help a lot with message services, uh, help humans coordinate their conversation, right? So we have this system, and we're going to use the channel server as sort of a representative for this, but the reality is it's kind of a, a constellation of services that runs in lots of different places now. And the goal of this constellation of services is to provide a real-time channel abstraction, is to provide something that you can, that you can long pull on, something that you can select if you like old-school Unix terminology. And clients consume from this pipe by opening a WebSocket to a URL that they get from the web application. Right? So the web application, as part of your login process, it looks at your token and says, oh, okay, yeah, you're Jeff Meyerson, you're part of these teams. Here's a URL for you to go listen to. You go listen to it. 
And then it is the responsibility of the server infrastructure to make sure that updates that real-time clients care about get broadcast over that bus. So there are side calls sprinkled throughout the web application into this real-time service to say things like, Jeff started typing. Or in the case of a message send, hey, a message got sent. Let's broadcast it to all the people that care. When somebody logs in or opens their laptop or focuses the application for the first time in a while, it will say, hey, user so-and-so is present again. And clients might stick a green dot next to your name in response. So that real-time part of things, and in a perfect world, this bus is, is kind of stateless, right? We should be able to power cycle the whole thing. And all that would happen is that people aren't getting updates for a little while. That's an ideal we haven't lived up to very, very well until recently, in my opinion. But conceptually, that real-time part of things, we try to keep that uh, a sort of separation of church and state between the stateful part of things that we back up and you know involves uh, application-level reasoning and that we can make guarantees to customers about when they have regulatory compliance demands and things like that. And the ephemeral, you know, only in memory long enough to be transmitted over the network part of things, which is kind of represented here by the channel server. The reason they're called channel servers is that the at a semantic level, the domain of ordering inside of Slack is the channel, right? There is no global ordering of events that is not within a single channel. So for instance, if you look at your Slack team and it has 700 channels in it, there are timestamps that represent server timestamps attached to those messages but there's no guarantee across those channels exactly what order the events happened, right? If something has the same microsecond timestamp, there's no way to say which one was before. For messages and other stateful events, like you know, the creation of threads and sharing files and things like that, within a channel, there is a total order. And the way that we guarantee that total order is that the channel servers themselves are a consistently hashed ring by channel ID so when I want to send a message, I take the ID of the channel I'd like to send it to, I project it onto this ring of servers, and the last I checked it was something like 40 servers. And that's the server that I'm going to go hit to send the message in. And so it is its job and privilege and responsibility to provide a total order on all the messages. So it's the thing that actually gets to decide what goes out in what order over the WebSocket to clients. So the channel server is, if I understand correctly, is responsible for imposing this ordering on messaging it's responsible for doing receiving messages and then broadcasting those messages to other users that are in the same channel uh, the same channel on slack and i believe there's also a responsibility of checkpointing those messages to disk so that if in case the channel server falls over you have some redundancy so that was true at one time and we no longer do that as of relatively recently. So one of our quarterly goals was to get the, the on-disk queue of the channel server out of the loop. And as I sit here talking to you, I believe that's finally completely true. And we'd have to get Sergey or, or another engineer on his team in here to make sure I'm not lying to you. But if that's not true yet, it's awful close to true. Was that an anti-pattern? Because you, you had, then you were dividing up the persistence responsibilities between the channel server and and the web app, like the web app was kind of the thing that handled checkpointing things to your MySQL source of truth. And then you had this other kind of persistence backup thing. Yeah, I mean, anti-pattern might be a little bit strong. Like I think there were, there are perfectly good reasons to have done things the way that they were done initially, I think. But it was a recurring source of some complexity, especially as we do more and more products where we 
make representations to customers about where their messages are or, or how we're handling them. So for example, my colleague Richard Crowley gave a talk at Frontiers, which is our, our user conference recently, about an EKM product we're rolling out pretty soon, hopefully. EKM stands for Enterprise Key Management. The idea here is that we have customers who, for their security sensitivity reasons or for compliance reasons, want to hold the encryption keys to their data. They don't want Slack to be able to read their messages, you know, even in principle. They'd like to be able to revoke Slack's access to all of their data at some point in the future if they need to. And so we, we have a system that we're, a product that we're trying to put together that lets you take your key management system and integrate it with your installation of Slack such that Slack uses your keys to encrypt and decrypt data. And a little bit of, the, if I can kind of brag about this for a while, like Richard kind of came up with something really pretty here because it's really hard to do this and preserve search right, and preserve lots of other value adds inside of Slack. And we think we're going to be able to do it. But that's an example of a product where uh, when we were sitting there trying to plan it out and figure out how we were going to do it, we kind of kept coming back to that little on disk queue of messages on channel server and saying, oh, right, <laughs> those ones. Does the channel server need to be able to talk to the key management system now? Do we want that to be in the loop for a send? Do we, you know, and it just sort of felt like a, you know, a, a big wart on the side of the system. And sort of similar stories around some data loss prevention products that we have. Also, we have retention settings, right? So some people, we tell you, we'll delete your data after, you know, seven days or 24 hours or whatever they want. And it was another thing that we had to make sure was sort of looped into this that was on a completely different system that wasn't part of MySQL. It, it also was something that was a fuse that was lit if if sort of the, the site was down. So imagine that sort of Slack.com is unable to process web requests for whatever reason, but people are still logged in and sending messages on channel server. If we've acknowledged receipt of those messages, we've sort of got this on disk queue growing in a tier of machines that is a sort of lit fuse that will eventually run out of disk space that you know limits our time to be able to respond to the outage. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was something that I think caused a lot of complexity. I'm sure the way that we're doing it now <laughs> has and will also continue to cause problems. We just like those problems better. Fair enough. One question I had about the channel server so I think I've, no, I have not done a show with WhatsApp, but WhatsApp use, uh, they use Erlang, and I've talked to other people that use Erlang for managing these kinds of multicast chat systems. You use Java for your channel server. What are the advantages of using Java, and and did you have you looked at Erlang at all as a potential use case? Because I hear Erlang mentioned a lot in the context of high uptime chat-like multicast systems. Yeah, and I actually I should say before I go any further here that we're not a Java monocultural shop. Our calls team actually uses Elixir for its backend, so the video chat and screen sharing and voice calls inside of Slack, Elixir's in the loop there. And Elixir is, you know, kind of modernization and syntactic sugaring on top of Erlang. And to be fair, they seem to be sort of falling into a pit of success using Elixir there, so that's great. We may use more of it in the future. I think that the choice of sort of tooling by, on the part of the founders, including the LAMP stack, including Java, uh, including the fact that the client is sort of frameworkless JavaScript, or at least uh, classic uh, Slack's web application was JavaScript without Angular or React or anything, just JavaScript. I think a lot of that had to do with just what our founders were most productive with, you know? Nothing uh, wrong with that. Yeah, they weren't interested in necessarily learning something new. They knew exactly how to do this with the tools that they knew best, and so they just got started doing it. Java's 
not been the weak link in the chain for us. For what it's worth, the sort of first-class service languages at Slack uh, that are that has some high-volume adoption inside of our services are Go, Java, and Hacklang. Right? So we do have some some services that we've also written in Hacklang, not just the, the web service. Elixir is a minority choice. Calls also has some C++ services. As we make some acquisitions, right? we're starting to, to acquire some small startups. We also end up integrating their stacks, and so they bring in some diversity in that, in that realm as well. So we're not a kind of perfect monocultural you know, Java, PHP, or Go Home type place to date. And honestly, I think it all kind of fits into the pragmatism that informs uh, the sort of technical spirit of Slack, right? It's a place that kind of flies in the face of an impossibility result and does something useful anyway. So kind of Culturally and spiritually, we're not the kind of place where we're going to say, well, the right way to do this is with Erlang. So since you mentioned WhatsApp, by the way, and this is not to, and, and I was briefly at Facebook after the WhatsApp acquisition, but never worked on WhatsApp. But my understanding from public stuff about WhatsApp is that at least classic WhatsApp, you know, uh, sort of cell phone to cell phone, small number of participants was actually in memory server side entirely. There was no actual persistence to it. It was the messages were actually only stored on phones. They were queued in memory server side until you start into the WhatsApp client. That's not to say that you can't ever do persistence using Erlang, but that seems to be a little bit of a of a unifying thread for the things where Erlang is extremely successful. So like with us with calls, that Elixir service I'm describing at calls also has that property, right? We're not recording your audio or your video for you. It seems to be a little bit of a unifying thread for the, the use cases for Elixir where they're super, super successful. Not to say you couldn't use it in other places, but that's that's the thing about WhatsApp that I think is was actually really freeing for me to get as sort of an architect at Slack was that WhatsApp is providing this great you know performance experience on super low end devices. Like why is Slack having so much trouble? Well, part of why Slack's having so much trouble beating its performance is actually that it's doing things that it's not doing that WhatsApp wasn't doing. It's also why it was so easy for them to do end to end encryption. They weren't actually giving up any data at rest to do that. They weren't storing your messages anyway. Yeah, sure. So on Slack, in contrast, every message in every channel is persisted. That is a lot of messages. What is the spec for persistence of messages in Slack, and how have you implemented it? That's a great question. We have uh, So our store of record, as I mentioned before, is MySQL. In some cases, fronted by Vitesse and sometimes, and sometimes directly accessed as MySQL. Uh, in terms of how we physically are persisting these things, it's a, a table in MySQL named Messages. Your message is uniquely identified in the world by a channel ID and a uh, timestamp. And the timestamp is uh, is fully ordered by the channel servers. We get those timestamps out of channel servers. So that's where the uniqueness guarantee comes from. And this is kind of an interesting thing, but you know, since your use of Slack is dominated by, or many people's use of Slack anyway, is dominated by the sending and receiving of messages. And since so much of kind of what we're talking about here is about the real-time aspects of that, you might expect that to be really storage intensive. And in practice, the storage intensive parts are actually different parts of the application. We spend a lot more bytes, at least last I checked, representing things like channel membership than we do representing messages, which might feel a little strange. But if you kind of go back to that fact that, you know, I can only send so many messages per day. As the company gets bigger, more and more people are going to join more and more channels. So that channel membership graph has kind of grown quadratically with customer size, while the number of messages sent is growing kind of linearly with, with the number of users we add. So uh, in practice, this is not where we start to get into trouble with, you know, burning up MySQL servers is just, you know, raw sending of messages. It's much more common that we 
in terms of actual performance problems we hit or storage difficulties that we hit, it's much, much more common that we're doing the same complicated join over and over again, trying to you know, tell you how many unread messages you have, for instance. In thinking about the overall architecture, as I understand it at this point, so I send a message from my phone to Slack, and it hits layers of load balancing and routing, and then it hits, I guess it hits it hits the web app, and then it hits the channel server, and then there's also, at some point, it's getting, that message is getting written to the database. At some point, the message is getting broadcast to other people who are in the same channel as me, so once the message is acknowledged on Slack's side as being received, then it can get broadcast to the rest of the people. And there's also a point at which, you know, if if the message is doing something, like if I'm sending a URL over the message, then something like URL unfurling, these sort of side uh, side tasks that might be associated with, with me sending a message to Slack, that's handled by this asynchronous job queue that handles the kind of other things that might be associated with the message that is not core to just sending a message that has to be broadcast to everybody else and is written to the database. I guess I'm just trying to understand the finer points of that workflow of a message being sent, hitting Slack's servers, uh, getting persisted, and getting broadcast back out to the other people in the channel. Yeah, I mean, you've got the rough shape of it, and I, I'll admit that every time I talk about this, even with the engineers who wrote it, it takes us a little while with the whiteboard to really convince ourselves that we've got the timeline exactly right. So, you know, with the caveat that it's possible I'm getting pieces of this wrong, my understanding of that post endpoint, uh, chat.post message, is that it contacts a channel server with the message, gets a successful return from the channel server that includes a, a timestamp. At that point, Parallel execution ensues, right? The channel server starts broadcasting the message to online clients. The web app takes that channel timestamp tuple and and the payload of the not the payload of the message. It writes the the row of MySQL that I described before, right? It writes to the messages table saying, in channel such and such, user ID thus and such, with the timestamp slash ID of this, wrote this text, and also enqueues a, a job queue job to do sort of uh, any at the very least to update search, but possibly some other job key jobs. Some of the cascading from this is things like mentions, right? So I can I can say at username, for instance, and it's supposed to notify you on your phone if you, you know, are away from Slack. So that that message broadcasting, that notification sending that happens because of mentions, that all happens outside of the loop of the of the web request via that job key system. So let's say that I've got my nitpicking distributed systems hat on and I've just heard this description and I want to say, aha, gotcha. Keith, what happens if you have sent the message to a channel server, it started broadcasting out to clients, people are seeing it on their phones, people are seeing it in their web browsers, and that web request crashes or that uh, web server gets decommissioned before you can go off and persist it? What then? What would happen then is that you'd have an inconsistent state, right? You'd have a sort of ephemeral message that shows up in the state of some clients that is not reflected in the, the core application that never gets indexed in search that if you come back in a month and try to look at the channel, it'll look as if that message never happened. And that's a, we're getting very close to sort of the core of the atomic broadcast impossibility result here. You can paper over that. And my understanding of the way things work right now is actually that simplifying the situation in a way that's substantial here, I don't think we actually quite would fail. Uh, I believe that we actually persist a kind of proto message before we contact the channel server and that a cleaner process would actually come back and repair it. 
However, the core observation that if exactly the right failure happens at exactly the right moment, some sort of uh, int of the of the application is violated is actually true. And the sort of fine part here is that the art at some level is to accept the impossibility result, accept that if something fails at exactly the right place, something terrible could happen, but reason through the consequences of it in a way that results in something useful. So in the case of Slack, sort of strangely enough, one of the things that is most unacceptable to us is a message that should have been deleted but isn't. In this case, right, if I'm the sender of this message, my client would have known that the send failed because the web request failed in this thought experiment, right? We unplugged the web server or something. So I got some kind of failure response from my uh, attempt to, to post to slack.com in this case. That sender, you know, assuming that client actually stays up in practice, it's going to try to send again because we built the clients that way. And it's going to try to send again with a, a hidden client cookie that's random that each client generates per message. And that key will be enough for the server side to deduplicate and kind of fix this scenario. So even in situations where you know a thing, things are crashing, we're losing connections and so on, a human interpretable situation ensues, right? If computers were trying to make sense of this log of messages, it's possible they'd see a message get you know renumbered, they'd see it sort of appear with one timestamp and then later on appear to, with a different timestamp and that might confuse them. But if these are people with their clients open trying to understand the, the train of a conversation, they'll be able to do it. So much of this conversation has been in the weeds, and that's that's good because that's what people listening to this like to hear, and they like to understand. But one thing I think about is I've had conversations that are reminiscent of this with Uber and Lyft because those are other applications where there's a lot of real-time sensitivity, and you have a, a multi-user real-time application that is, as we've discussed, in many ways like a game. But my sense is that this stuff is still so hard to build. You have things like Firebase, for example, which I, I love Firebase, and it can kind of enable some some real real-time applications. But my sense is that this stuff is, for most engineers, it's kind of out of reach. You you, you have to have a, a big company. You have to, like, to, in order to, to build real-time applications at scale like this, you're going to have to solve some really hard problems. Are there any, like, AWS services that you wish existed? Is there any piece of architectural black box blob that you wish could solve problems to you? Or do you feel like these are just problems that are inherent in software architecture that you can't turn into some kind of service to just take care of for, you know, the average developer? I mean, that's a really wonderful question. And I think I think it's tough to give a crisp answer. Slack was getting started four years ago. Public Cloud was uh, has been maturing really, really quickly since then. And I think there are actually a lot of pass offerings that would be valuable in building something like Slack that if we were starting over now, we would probably avail ourselves of. So there's a class of distributed state problems that we solve, you know, by scratch with the with the pieces I've been describing that Firebase could partially solve for us, right? So things like user profiles and maybe the metadata structure of a team. Um, I feel like Firebase would actually be a great enabling technology for that kind of thing. And if I were starting a Slack clone from scratch today, I'd be really glad that Firebase is out there. Even building the back end of stuff, there are things that we did by hand 
in constructing Slack that might make more sense to use a platform as a service offering instead, right? So the job queue that I was describing for you where we, you know, we go into Kafka and then we wrote some Go that takes the stuff out of Kafka and puts it in Redis and blah, blah, blah. You know, if I were starting from scratch today, maybe that would just be SQS or Kinesis or, or the moral equivalent of those things. So there are certainly important and useful components that have come along. However, I do think when you boil it down far enough, at least in the case of Slack, and it, it's, it'd be an interesting thought experiment for me to have this conversation with colleagues at Uber and Lyft. But for the case that I've thought about more deeply, I do think there are some end-to-end considerations. So for example, these kind of low-level fiddly bits about exactly what happens when something fails, right? Because something has to fail. You have to have some you know, set of semantics that kick in when a machine fails or when a message, you lose a network connection and so on. And that tends to be application level reasoning, right? Sort of our answer around what we do when something goes wrong in the message send process takes into account, you know, the fact that we have an EKM offering, right? And the fact that we want to do, um, that we've got these other plans for how we want the storage backend to work and so on. And it's very hard for me to imagine something that didn't make so many decisions for you out of hand, uh, up front that it essentially overdetermined the kinds of applications you could build. It's hard for me to imagine sort of boiling away that hard part into a reusable service because my intuition at least is the decisions that Slack made would be the wrong decisions for Uber, would be the wrong decisions for Airbnb, you know, would be the wrong decisions for Google Hangouts, right? So that's my best guess at this is that there's a set of things that certainly are productivity enhancing and that take away some of the toil of dealing with everything at the level of like IP addresses and you know code you wrote that listens on a port, but that there's still some core value that the, that the application actually adds in terms of considering all the use cases and making the hard decisions. Agreed. And Firebase probably works for the 100 user types of use cases. I guess these problems only really become challenging when you have the kind of traction and scale where you can actually hire a big engineering team and have them build these kinds of solutions. Yeah, that's right, Jeff. And scale is another kind of choice, right? Scale is, is uh, a set of use cases that you choose to support. And there's no way for somebody that doesn't kind of have uh, your economic best interests at heart to understand which choices are going to make sense for you. I recently uh, gave a talk about scaling Slack at Denver Startup Week, and it was on the topic of scalability. And one of the things I try to emphasize when I talk about scalability is that it doesn't make sense to talk about scale unless you say which dimension you're scaling in, right? You know, nobody wants to put, or at least as far as I know, you can't put terabyte messages in Slack, right? That's not a dimension we chose to scale in, message size. Just not valuable for us to go in that direction. There's make all kinds of weird decisions differently if that was an important way to scale. Turns out not to be. It turns out number of users in a channel is. But I think whatever kind of abstraction of a channel that I tried to build and make as a past offering, there's no way it would get all of the decisions right about which dimensions you might possibly have to scale in. Okay, well, I think that's a great place to close off. Keith, thanks for coming back on the show. Really great talking to you. Always a pleasure to see the case study of Slack. Always a pleasure talking to you, Jeff. Thanks to you and your audience for your time. Wow.